Welcome to Real Money Talks. Real strategies from the money makers and the world changers that you can use to make millions, keep those millions, multiply your wealth, and build your team. Here's your host, author of five New York Times bestsellers, money expert on Dr. Phil, CNN, CNBC, The Street TV, Fox News, and The View, Laurel Langmire. Hey everyone, welcome to today's Market Awareness uh, Webinar Update. Very happy to have you here. We have a very special guest, member of the community, Weldon Wolf's team will be on talking to Laurel. Before we get started here, before we push live to all of our social channels, want to uh, do a quick rundown on how today's call will be handled. If you're joining us via Zoom or any of the social channels, let us know what your number one tax question is. We're going to be having those conversations today. Part of our larger conversation about getting our financial houses in order in terms of making sure we end the year strong and, and start the new year off right. Everything going on current events-wise is very important. You realize that the end of the year is sooner than you think. So with everyone, would love to, there we go. We have people hopping on now, going live to Facebook and Twitter. So I will go ahead and uh, put it over to you, Laurel. How are we doing today, ma'am? Awesome. Thank you. And uh, again, uh, welcome all of you. We are uh, wrapping up, as you know, our virtual meetup and marketplace. So last Thursday, Friday, actually Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we had I think just over 100 people doing our marketplace. And uh, we don't have the results, the audit. Um, what it kind of happened? Did they just not bring their their auditing, right? This, so it's uh, interesting we have Weldon on because talk about our auditing. They just don't want to like what? Give their contracts and order money? Actually, no. There was, there, literally, there were so many sales, they had trouble getting all the sales receipts. That was what happened for two of the right. people. So we have we we know who the unofficial winners are. Once we get them audited, we will let you all know. But so far, it's looking like our first place seller sold seventy five hundred dollars. Our second place seller uh, sold thirty five hundred dollars, and our third place was just close to a thousand. So it was a very productive yeah. group in terms of the number of sales. Nope, that was good, and that was kind of a slow start on Thursday, Friday. So I think uh, you finished strong as a group. And again, want to acknowledge those who have jumped uh, into some sort of an advanced coaching program, especially those in uh, VIP and Big Table. And uh, you'll be welcomed by Jordan and Damon and uh, brought into the community. So our broadcast uh, starting last week, we have like a seven-week run to uh, the election, which is on November third. We will be broadcasting. So. We want to make sure you do your financial uh, infrastructure, we're calling it, and getting your house in order. And also just acknowledging that really by the beginning of November, if your house isn't in order, the chances of you getting stuff done with any of the agencies in this country, or probably any country, quite frankly, uh, Canada's even, I should say, almost worse, um, just knowing that from my husband, on how many agencies are shut down, like getting incorporated, getting anything that you need from any of them. You probably need to get that done by the beginning of, again, November, no later than mid-November. And I brought an expert, um, good friend, my CPA, Weldon uh, Wilson is with us today. And we're going to talk about taxes all day, your favorite subject. So what I love about it is, uh, believe it or not, I think taxes and tax strategy is extremely creative. I know some people probably think that's odd. You must think it's creative, Weldon, or you wouldn't have got into this. But share with the, the group. And uh, I have my chat up. I'm not seeing a lot of questions. Again, the question is, what is your number one tax question? So we want to hear from all of you. What's your number one tax question? So we can put that out to Weldon. And um, we'll talk through some of the dates. We'll talk through how uh, I'd say we act, think, and make money the way the wealthy do. We pay tax different too. So with that, Weldon, welcome to our uh, Tuesday broadcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Super excited. So give a little background. Um, 
who are you? Why tax? People, I think, say, you know, I think a lot of people think it's boring. I think it's extremely creative. It's probably the funnest part of it. Yeah, I mean, people kind of ask like why or how I got involved in taxes. And, you know, it's ever since I've been a little kid, I've always liked puzzles. And so kind of the way I see it is each different tax strategy is kind of like a puzzle. Mm -hmm. You have to kind of look ahead and plan, but you can put that puzzle together and putting it together, different pieces for different places for, you know, each custom person and each thing. So that, that kind of that sort of drove me to really get more involved in the tax strategies and the tax planning. Obviously, you have to prepare the tax returns, but uh, really kind of got into the the planning part of it and the strategy part of it, because that's where the, the fun stuff happens. Then the your clients are you're not telling them that they owe a couple hundred thousand dollars on April 15th when, you know, scares the crap out of them. You know, so going back and especially this year, I mean, you really hit the, the nail on the head when... You're saying you really need to plan this year. I know we've had some of these uh, webinars previous, kind of always told everybody, you got to plan. I mean, this whole thing, you got to plan, you got to plan, you've got to plan. But this year, because, I mean, even even trying to get any kind of information from the IRS, they're, they're pretty much shut down. So they're not even, the only essential workers are working. Everybody's down at home or at their houses. They're not even collecting mail. I mean, they've got truckloads of mail that haven't been, been processed. So yeah, so there is a very distinct process and I know, you know, you've talked about, you've got to get your records in order, you know, so that, that includes your bookkeeping, that includes your, your entity structures. I mean, you've got to do that. You've got to do that now. You can't wait until December 21st before you do that, because it's, again, it's not going to happen. You know, and I know a lot of people don't want to deal with the taxes, but unfortunately they're not going to go away. I always have to deal with them. And I mean, you might as well just, you know, instead of procrastinating, get it done, do it now. So so then we can plan, and then it doesn't necessarily mean we have to file your returns you know, before April 15th. Typically kind of wait until the September and October to do that, but at least... I'm just going to explain that a little bit. A lot of people don't realize they hear it. And of course, you know, they go back to TurboTax, H&R Block, some, uh, you know, and even some accountants that just, you know, don't want to work through the fall. Explain the, those date differences. So basically, I mean, on a, a normal year, obviously 2020 was not a normal year, but on a normal year, your first, your tax returns due April 15th, but um, for individuals, it's due March 15th for any kind of business that sends out a K-1. However, you have the option to extend those. So you can do an extension all the way up through September 15th for the entities and October 15th for the personal and individual. Why do so many people still file in, in April, though, when, when we know you have that whole time? Is, I, I, here, I'll just kind of lead with the assumption is most people are waiting for money back versus keeping yeah, so, so, I mean, there, there is a good reason why you would file in April before April is because you have paid the government. You've basically loaned money to the gov- federal government for free. So everybody wants to get that refund back. And if you have a refund. I mean, it's obviously coming back and, and you obviously can file it. You get file it early. So there is the potential of filing it early. I mean, that's one of the reasons why. But if you're getting a refund back, let's think that process. Yep. yep. So, and I mean, people get excited about this saying, oh, I got $7,000 back or I got $10,000 back. It's like, so you realize you took that opportunity and you gave the government that money. You physically gave it to them. They got to use it however they saw fit for 12 months and they don't send you interest. They don't send you, I mean, even if you took that money and put it into a 
bank and a savings account, at least you're earning a tenth of a percent. You're, you're ahead of the game. I mean, forget about any other opportunity costs that you might have with that. But if you don't prescribe to planning and, and doing any kind of planning for this, then then yeah, so you're kind of stuck. People don't want it. People can't typically afford to come up with $10,000. And so that's where it comes back to this whole thing where you have to get your stuff in, in order. And you should have it in order every quarter or every month. I mean, it, it needs to be done throughout the whole year. Now, kind of, you, we're coming to the point where it's like, uh, you've got to get it done now. Otherwise, it's going to be too late. And you're going to be one of the ones, I mean, that have just given your money away to the federal government. So, well, let's jump into some of these questions. So, uh, somebody from the 100K group, right? The folks that are working on making 100K in income. When or why would you move away from an LLC sole prop to an S Corp or a C Corp? Instantly. It's, yeah. Okay. So, explain why. There's several reasons. One, if you put a LLC, so an LLC have the option to do a disregarded entity. So, that would be where it'd be considered a sole prop files on your Schedule C, all that net income comes down to you personally. You pay Social Security, Medicare tax on that net income. Plus, all that information is reported on your personal income tax return. So if you can convert that, you can actually convert that LLC to a single member S corporation, then yes, there's a little bit more work, but then you can dictate how much money is paid through salary and how much money is paid through a distribution and just income tax. If we do a salary, that's what's going to be taxed for Social Security and Medicare purposes. So that would be, you know, the same thing as the bottom line of the Schedule C. And potentially you have, I mean, you're going to save 15% of whatever that bottom line is, or at least half of that bottom line at minimum. You know, so you take a hundred thousand dollar net income. It's fifteen grand that you're paying extra in Social Security Medicare tax. We can very easily cut that in half and save you seventy five hundred dollars just by making that change to an escort. And then um, talk about some of the let's follow that through on uh, how they pay themselves because a lot of folks uh, should they do actually a small W-2 salary, which I, I know, you know, we talk a lot about that. I think some just kind of take it as distributions as they need. How can they structure again to the financial infrastructure? How do they structure that? Give them some real direction. Well, I mean, one of the things we want to consider is what, you know, kind of what we have to consider what they're doing for the company. So there has to, we have to look at the job description and we want to look at kind of the age of our client because looking at that is, we don't want to miss out on social security. So you don't want to just not have any kind of earned income or any kind of social security, because I mean, obviously that's a, a part of the retirement or, you know, a part of the revenue that you can collect later on in life. And you don't want to leave that on the table. But again, we don't want to pay a hundred percent and everything we have to that because we've got opportunities where we can take that extra money and invest it in how we want to versus how the government is investing it. But there are a couple of things that the, with the S corp, Corporation, the IRS has required us to pay a payroll tax. Mm-hmm. So, and do a salary because you can basically consider half, I mean, consider you as an owner of the company and then also as an employee of the company. The minimum kind of, and there's, I mean, I can go into it's a super long description, but the minimum you really want to pay yourself is about $7,000 a year, assuming you're making money on the company. Now, if you're running at a loss, um, with the company not taking any kind of the cash out, that number can change. But if you're pulling money out, you want to at least do a $7,000 payroll and potentially a little bit more depending on what you do for the company. 
but that's an individual basis. And someone asked from the Facebook group, you know, what's the benefit of uh, extending kind of back to the September, October? I mean, clearly it's because you really shouldn't be paying if you have good tax strategy. You shouldn't be paying or getting a refund. Assuming that you're you're not owing anything and whether it's justified or not, when the IRS is pulling their returns to be audited, they start that fairly early in the process. And some of it is computerized, but by the time they get to that, there's a feeling out there that by October 15th, they've already selected everybody. So you have a slightly less chance of being audited. I don't know if, if we can actually ever prove that or not prove that. And then also, um, one of the things typically, if you are investing in some of these alternative investments, you're not going to get your information to file a correct return until that date anyway. Um, Explain that a little bit more. So I don't think people realize like, you know, this, I back up and like from the alternative investing strategies, getting those K-1s and those delays. So what happens is you invest into a, an apartment complex fund and that K-1 gets issued. That K-1 is typically going to be issued because they've got to go through their accounting records. The initial date would be uh, March 15th, but they're probably going to extend that until closer to September. So you need to have that long date and that extension to be able to file that correctly or be able to file that accurately with that K-1. All right, move back to some questions. Um, what are the thoughts on cost segregation on real estate, especially for real estate sold this year? Not sure what cost segregation. Do you- cost segregation. So basically, when you purchase a real estate asset, especially a commercial building, a larger asset, you can take those cost, you have a study done and it takes the purchase price and it allocates it between different systems. So it allocates between the building, it allocates it between maybe the HVAC, the electrical, the plumbing, all these different systems. And then these different systems are depreciated at a faster or slower rate. So if you are looking for a faster depreciation, so some kind of tax deduction, if you will, then you can run through a cost segregation study take a larger depreciation because a lot of these systems depreciate faster than the building itself. As a commercial property, the building, you're going to depreciate that at 39 years, which is a really long time. And so the only other kind of factor you have to figure that is if you're going to sell this or flip this property, then you're going to have to recapture that depreciation that you took early on. So then you want to consider potentially doing a 1031 exchange with it. You know, So there are some, some factors when you... You don't want to necessarily have to recapture all of that depreciation because it's, it has to be recaptured at a higher rate than uh, a capital gain would be. And so as you look at alternative investing, there are some, obviously, like gas and oil, which is now completely wrapped wells, um, right. but it still has some of the best depreciation schedules. So as we're working with this group on creating their money rules... And um, they're looking, right, uh, you know, I've heard my greatest mentor say, you know, there's two problems in life, too much money and then not enough money. So we're dealing with the when you have too much money and your tax burden is high, obviously how you invest can reduce that. Talk a little bit about other strategies and then specifically what kind of assets that uh, can work to reduce some of that tax burden. Uh, There's two that are pretty prominent that you've got, I mean, obviously the real estate that we talked about, and especially if you have something that you can do the cost segregation on, you get a depreciation deduction. So you invest $100,000, comes back and you get maybe 50% of that can come back in a depreciation deduction. 
offsetting, and then that gets to offset some of your other income. Now, for oil and gas, oil and gas has kind of a special thing called an IDC or intangible drilling cost. It's basically the cost that it took the operator to come up to get that well in the ground and all the operations up to that point. Now, when you invest money and depending on the, the operator, but roughly it's about 75% of your investment would come back to you in this IDC or intangible drilling cost that you get to deduct off of your ordinary income. Now, the difference between like the real estate and the oil and gas, the real estate can be limited based off of your income if you're not a real estate professional. So you have to be aware of what kind of limitations and you might have some limitations there. Whereas the oil and gas, that's not going to be limited because they've got a special little section in the tax code that allows you to still deduct that. So when you're looking at these deductions, if you're in a higher tax bracket, I mean, you've got to consider that as far as the company, even if you're not, you know, they might not be necessarily cash flowing or, or putting cash back in. You've got to look at that as far as a return, calculating that part of the return on your investment. Because that, that can be substantial. So give an example of what's substantial. Maybe if somebody had a $50,000 tax burden, $40,000, um, kind of walk through an example of that. And then also speak to like, what do you do now? I mean, you and I've talked about it. When gas and oil is, uh, the prices are on the floor, you know, fields are being given away. You can barely, I mean, everyone's selling right now. So do you even take a risk at that? So taking a risk of that, that really depends on your risk tolerance and what kind of investment you want to, because there are still people that are going to, just because it's not being pumped out doesn't necessarily mean that the oil is gone. It's still in the ground. It's just not cost effective to pull it out. So you could have operators that are just buying up a ton of different wells. And if you have that you know risk tolerance to be able to sustain that, then it's, it might not be a bad idea. But Again, it's not going to be, it is not going to be for everyone because you're not going to get cash out of it for a while. So if you look back to the, the tax burden, if you have, let's say you're in the 35% tax bracket, you would be able to save, um, you know, if you do, let's say you, you put $100,000 into this type of an investment, you would basically, the direct relationship would be of that $75,000, 35% of that you know, roughly $30,000 would be a deduction, a direct tax savings for you. So it can be a very significant tax savings on your bill, depending on what level of income tax. Now, if you're in the, the 10% tax bracket, obviously that, that tax savings is not going to be as big, you know, versus the higher levels. So what do you think is going to happen with gas and oil? Opinion question. Opinion question. Yeah. It's rough right now. Oof. You know, it's really interesting because I had a discussion earlier today about gas and oil. I mean, gas and oil is a true, if you've studied economics, it's a true supply and demand commodity. So when the supply is there, they turn it on. And when the supply is not, it turns off. I mean, so they they have complete control and it's quick whether they turn it off or on. We are not going to be gas in, I mean, electric car, all electric cars. I mean, we're, we're always going to need petroleum products. Yep. So, and it's not just the fueling of the vehicles. I mean, if you think about what what products take petroleum, I mean, the clothes you wear, anything with any kind of elastic clothes, I mean, that's all petroleum. Pretty much everything that has plastic in it is a petroleum product. And yep. that's it's not just the vehicles that we're looking at. It It is all everything we, I mean, everything we touch. 
there's not a single thing that you touch today that does not have petroleum in it. So it, yes, when and where, how fast that recovers, you know, I wish I knew because then, then you know, I'd obviously be a lot richer than I am. But I mean, I think it is going to recover, but it's just when. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I'm going to move to Facebook group. So Maureen uh, from Facebook says, do you know yet how forgiven SBA PPP loans will be treated in an S-Corp tax return? Yes. So currently, and uh, subject to doing a little caveat, subject to change, and if Congress changes. So originally, this whole PPP thing, they had told they didn't want it included in gross revenue. Okay, perfect. So it's not included in gross revenue, but what happens is on the amounts that you get forgiven, so let's say you got a $100,000 PPP loan, you spent that correctly on payroll, you paid the payroll, you won't get to deduct that expense on payroll. So yes, it has the exact same effect and will be taxable on your bottom line. So that wasn't necessarily the intention of Congress, but that's the way the law was written and the interpretation from the IRS is the way it's going to happen currently unless they change it. It will be taxed to you on the bottom line. Okay. Um, when depositing a large sum of cash, is it best to set up a revocable trust with an account set up under the trust when you're depositing from where? That's interesting. So it's a Facebook question. When you're depositing cash. A large amount of cash is what the question is. Could be in the MJ business. <laughs> it's, that's still going to be bank related, not trust related. Yeah, no, it's the the relationship with the banker is going to be key to that one. And then whether it's it's the amount of paperwork and how often you would deposit that money, you know, that that is kind of a concern. So there again, it's a Patriot Law Act or law that they're really trying to come up with to track fraudulent monies being transferred is what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so when and why would you transition to a C Corp? I don't know if I'd ever, ever actually quote unquote transition to a C Corp, but adding a C Corp to your repertoire of entities can be a very useful, beneficial tool because you can set up a C Corp. But obviously, with the current tax law, the C Corp is taxed on its own. It's not part of your income, especially mm-hmm. if you're in the higher income bracket. You can utilize a C Corp and we can keep it at a 21% tax rate. I would guess that this is probably not going to last more than a couple of years. But I think what's going to initially happen is they'll do the brackets again, but there'll be only a couple brackets the next time that comes around. You might be at a 21% rate, but then you know some of it might be at a higher rate. Previously, we had a lower 15% rate, which was kind of beneficial because we could tax you know uh, 50 grand at a, at a low rate versus the, the larger amounts. Use it as a tool not necessarily transition your operating company over to it, but, you know, using it as a tool to level some of the income. And so what would be some of the uses of a C-Corp? Some of the types of C-Corps you can have, I mean, whether it could be maybe your C-Corp holds intellectual property or license out that property to other operating companies. It could be a management company or a consulting company. And, you know, you can pretty much put it in any state. So it's kind of one of the considerations. You, you look at the states that uh, maybe have a little better tax treatment mm-hmm. than one that you're current, possibly currently in. And, you know, 
establishing a, a location for the company there and running it out of that state versus out of your home state. And so, and they part of the thing too is if, especially if you put maybe some intellectual property, that's that's can be a value or an asset that you have. And by moving the entity to a different state, kind of out of where you live, it makes it a little bit more difficult for people to find you or find it. And again, it makes you a smaller target. That's the whole kind of idea. Is our information is super; it's everywhere on the internet. And the more private you can make that, the better it's going to be. And by separating that, the IP, putting it in a corporation, you know, obviously never name a corporation your same name. Uh, you know, do it kind of differently so you can have that that privacy. Privacy is going to become really key. And so when do you start that divide? Like right now, a lot of our clients, especially the new ones that just came out of our event, we're also in conversations with Scott or, you know, just joining table. So like you said, they'll have an LLC or an S corp as their operating company. Is there a revenue? Cause a lot of times that's the question is at what point, cause I don't know that it's about revenue. I think it's more about asset protection, but when would you add on that say LLC and C corp or S corp and C corp? Favorite answer. It depends. <laughs> I know. I love that. You know, and it, it depends on, on several factors. One, the complexity and the level of education and knowledge that the client has. You know, if they can handle it, yeah, you want to put it on. I mean, I would say put it on as fast as possible, get it all set up, get it set up initially. However, that's not necessarily realistic because a lot of people can't understand that and don't understand that and get confused. And then they flounder a bit and don't move. And it's worse not to move than it is to not have that set up, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So as, as level of importance, one, I mean, it's the, the operating entities is the most important entity to set up first. Then I would probably, especially a lot of people, you know, invest in real estate. So I'd say the, the real estate company would be, be next. Again, this is, a, you know, we're talking about asset protection as well with this. And then probably the third priority would be to setting up the C-Corp. And so, and doing those for a lot of people, it works better in phases where they phase into that set one, set the next one do the next one. But uh, there are a substantial number of people that understand it. They get it. They, they go, I understand. I mean, but no, setting them up all at once, you will need them set up eventually, but uh, doing it all at once can be uh, just a little bit overwhelming. And so talk about some of the deductions. Um, and maybe we use like a, an S or an LLC versus a C. Like as folks start, you know, we're just starting, how do they get their computer? How did you, how do they do their home office? How do they start moving those deductions, those expenses really as deductions inside the company and start making those decisions? Most people don't move enough fast enough. I would say probably one of the biggest questions is, do you have a list of deductions of things I can deduct? And there is actually not a list of deductible items. There are some things that you can't deduct, but the rules are, it has to be ordinary and necessary. And it has the primary purpose of that expense has to be for the production of income for the company. See how creative that is? There you go. (laughs) It's an education process where the client or the person who's just starting this business really needs to change their mindset. Instead of saying, oh, this is not deductible, saying, okay, what do I need to do to make this deductible? How do I have to treat this expense to make it deductible? And, you know, there's some documentation, there's some, you know, thinking it's really about your, your mindset and, and how you're thinking about it to be able to deduct it. So that's kind of, um, you know, if you have the right process, you can pretty much deduct most things. Yep. 
So talk about, uh, because we talk a lot about, you know, going on business trips versus vacation. Give some insight. Let's just use real estate. That's an easy one. What what makes the business trip, you know, deductible for, for someone's real estate company? What do they have to do? So, I mean, one, you have to document what you're doing. You have to document why it's a business trip. And so if you're going out there and looking at some properties or looking at the market area, you, I mean, you need to say, to have records of what you went and saw to kind of keep up just a, a general narrative of that trip just because you one of the days perhaps you saw some family members or you saw somebody else you just need to be able to document that the main reason why you went out there was to look at the real estate not necessarily to go see the family <laughs> um, but they could see the family and see some real estate but again the primary purpose of that expense is to go out there to, to see real estate when you're doing events People could come to Lake Tahoe and go to one of your events and deduct it. Yep. Just because maybe they went skiing beside the path, you know, one of the days, that doesn't necessarily negate the whole expense or the whole trip being non-deductible because the primary purpose for that trip was to come out to go to the, the big table and to Paris. I mean, it's kind of a simplified version, but again, and it, it's how you think about that trip. And again, you do need to make keep some kind of documentation. You know, I'd keep the, the list of the from the real estate agent or whoever you went and saw, or if it's a you know apartment coming. Just keep a, a narrative, and that's really what you need to document. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Real Money Talks podcast. Your host has been Laurel Langmire, author of five New York Times bestsellers, money expert on Dr. Phil, CNN, CNBC the street tv fox news and the view want to learn more about off wall street investing tax strategies and multi-million dollar business strategies visit liveoutloud.com slash podcast for past episodes show notes and resources for some special wealth building gifts only for laurel's podcast listeners visit liveoutloud.com slash podcast gifts do you have a burning question for laurel Visit asklaurel.com to submit your question, and it may just be covered on a podcast episode. So stay tuned and be sure to subscribe to get new episodes every week. Music.